Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In December 1958, the first conference of the Union of African Nations was held at Accra in Ghana. Among the delegations was one from Algeria, representatives of a movement which for four years had been engaged in the bloody war of independence from France. But the Algerian delegates were not interested solely in Algeria. Every African must feel directly engaged and ready to answer the call of any and all territories, one of them declared. An Algerian cannot be a true Algerian if he does not feel in his core the indescribable tragedy that is unfolding in the two Rhodesias or in Angola. And that man, uh, Dominic, was Franz Fanon, who I guess is, I mean, he's a, he's a colossally influential figure, isn't he, on the history of, of decolonization, uh, and I guess specifically in, in, in the African context. Yeah, he is absolutely. So born in Martinique, um, he's one of the, uh, he becomes one of the emblematic intellectuals of the age of decolonization, um, with his arguments about, about blackness and about, um, pan-Africanism and so on. Now you, I know what you're thinking, Tom, you think I know nothing about Franz Fanon, but what you don't know is that my very first work of research was on French colonial Algeria, um, a subject that Fanon came to know very well. I wrote a thesis about an anti-Semitic riot in the city of Constantine in Algeria in 1934. Utterly unread, languishes somewhere in a library in Oxford, but I did it. So there you go. So, so, so I've managed to it. turn the conversation from Fanon to myself, which regular <laughs> listeners regular That's listeners a, will know is exactly the spirit in which we conduct this podcast. A classic European manoeuvre. Yeah, very much. Yeah, Recentering very much. Europe. Yes, exactly. On, on, on what... Uh, it's going to be a discussion about um, the process of, of African decolonization. And, yeah, it's a fascinating um, subject, though, isn't it? Yeah, I and, mean, and Fanon's Fan, Fan a remarkable writer, The Wretched of the Earth. I mean, he's kind of one of the great kind of foundational texts. But I think one of the things that's interesting about him is the degree to which he's also very French. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yes. and because, you know, Martinique was, you know, a French colony. Yeah. Um, and, and so I. I wanted to do this topic because uh, I read a fantastic essay by um, Tom Owalade in Unheard on Fanon. And the moment I read it, I messaged him and asked him if he would come on and uh, elaborate not just about Fanon, but about the entire history of, of African decolonization. So entire very much for answering the call. Yes, your entire history. We've got, what, 50 minutes, 40, 50 minutes to do that. Um, so thanks so much for, for, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, Tom, could I ask you, um, December 1958, when um, Fanon delivers those comments, what is the state of play with Africa and its, uh, the, the process of decolonization? Yeah, so um, in 1958, decolonization was just um, at the very early stages. Um, so a year before that, in 1957, the first black African country to gain independence from the British Empire was Ghana. Um, with Kwame Nkrumah. And the year before that, in 1956, two of France's um, protectorates um, in Northern Africa, um, Tunisia and Morocco, gained independence. But by 1945, which I think should be seen as the year in which many anti-colonial leaders really gained confidence, they were about only four African countries that could be said to be independent. So Egypt, which which we can dispute, but was arguably an independent state by 1945. But very, um, I mean, had long been under British. Yeah, thumb, of course, hadn't of course, it? Yeah. of course. Yeah, e Ethiopia as well, um, which was of course occupied during the Second World War um, by Mussolini's Italy. Liberia, which was founded in the 19th century by um, ex African American slaves, or or by or was founded for, I should say, ex African American slaves. Um, in the 19th century, and also um, Sierra Leone, which was as well founded um, to house slaves that were freed after the American Revolutionary War. South Africa as well was independent because in 1910, South Africa 
became a dominion within the British Empire, which meant similar to Australia and also um, Canada, it had independence um, and was self-governing. So apart from those countries, Africa was colonized or at least controlled by some other means by European powers. And there's, well, there's quite a lot of um, there's quite a lot of variety in that, though, isn't there? So some of these yeah. places have, um, let's say, old French Algeria or Kenya or let's say Southern Rhodesia. They have pretty substantial um, European white settler populations. I mean, Algeria is probably the classic example. About ten percent of them are, are, are white Europeans, but that's not the case everywhere. So obviously, there are quite a lot of colonies where there's a a, a a pretty small European presence. And there, I guess, does it depend largely on collaborationist kind of elites? I mean, collaborationist is a very loaded word, but you know yeah. what I mean. It's, it basically depend. Yeah. Is the is the is the power base of the Europeans always more fragile than it looks, do you think? Definitely. In, in a country like um, the Gold Coast, which later became Ghana, um, it was very much dependent upon the um, collaboration between the British colonial authorities and the um, native African elites, so the businessmen um, and the lawyers as well. So by 1951, for example, um, six years before the Gold Coast became independent as Ghana, they were given what was known as responsible self-government. So a constitution granted them responsible self-government. And this this, this was on, only done because I think by that time, Ghana itself had an emerging upper middle class elite. It was, it was probably the most educated out of all of Britain's West African colonies. So the British could afford to give them a, a degree of autonomy on that basis. But that, that's not the case, for example, if we compare that to um, Congo under um, the Belgian colonial authority, which was basically ruled from Brussels, essentially, and was a very, very poorly educated um, colony. So are there, are there radical differences between, say, how uh, British colonies, Belgian colonies, French colonies um, that you can trace? Or do they, uh, are, are they, I mean, I suppose there's a big difference, say, between Gold Coast and, and South Africa, as Dominic's pointed out. So um, with regards to France, the, the French colonies were treated uh, as, as a sort of integral part of France itself, essentially. So Algeria so, is, example, isn't it? Algeria is yeah, actually, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 exactly, it's a metropolitan yeah. part of France, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and even the um, three of, of the, the most northern Algerian territories, so um, Algiers, Iran and Constantine, were actually departments of, of, of France. They had the same political and legal status as actual territories within uh, metropolitan France. And, and and the other territories as well, so in, in West Africa, but also in, in an area known as French Equatorial Africa, they were treated as part of a greater a greater France, essentially. Whereas um, with the British colonies, they were ruled as individual and independent colonies. So they had no um, sort of relation with each other. But with France, they were all sort of integrated within greater France. And with Belgium, Belgium is an interesting case because before Congo officially became a part of of the Belgian colony in 1908, it was essentially the private property of Leopold II, who was one of the most influential figures in the scramble for Africa. And he, he ruled Belgium for about 23 years. And he basically used Belgium to extract the natural resources especially in the 1890s when the um, invention of the pneumatic title led to a massive boom for rubber. And, and his regime is, 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 is very notorious because half the population of, of Congo were killed during his, his 23-year rule. And, and he, he's also the, um, the figure upon which um, Kurtz from Joseph Conrad's um, famous novella, Heart of Darkness, is based upon. The horror, the horror. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, because that's—I mean, it's kind of hands being chopped off and yeah, yeah, people's children Definitely. being killed. If they, I mean, horrendous. So, yeah. so there's a, 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 a wide array of colonial approaches mm. to Africa uh, by the Europeans, 
but by 1958, the foundations are are starting to to wobble. Yeah. And why why is that? Is that due to European weakness or to the growing strength of of African determination to obtain autonomy and independence? Do you think what's more important? I I, I think that's 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 probably a case by case basis. Okay. Well, <laughs> so so should we look, should we look at at Ghana, yeah. Where, where, yeah. where this you know this this um, first yeah. conference of the Union of African Nations is being held in nineteen fifty eight. Yeah. So, so what's the what's the the process by which Ghana becomes independent from Britain? In 1947, there was a new party that was um, created in Ghana, and this party was known as the United Gold Coast Convention, and it was a party which consisted of native African elites, so businessmen and lawyers. And the leader of that party was a man called Joseph Dwankwa, and Dwankwa was, I believe, the first black African to actually qualify as a barrister in the Inner Temple in London. So it, so this party consisted largely of westernised um, Native Africans. And, and the party was um, created so, so that the British could develop a path by which the Gold Coast can grad- gradually become a self-governing country within the British Empire and possibly... Um, independent eventually and and two years after the party was created one of the um, leaders of the parties or one of the organizers of the parties split off when created his own party and, and this organizer within the party was Kwame Nkrumah who later became the first prime minister of Ghana so pri- prior to joining this party in 1947 Nkrumah lived for over a decade abroad he was in America studying um, sociology, economics, and philosophy. But he was um, largely impoverished during this time. And he even spent some time in New York um, selling fish. <laughs> and and he, he also later moved to, to London to study law. And he spent most of his time, rather than actually getting his law degree, arguing with communists and anti-colonialists in Camden cafes. Um, <laughs> Never go to Camden. <laughs> That's the last that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so in 1949, Nkrumah split off from the United Gold Coast Convention to set up his own party. And the priority for Nkrumah was not independence as a gradual process. He wanted independence now. He was later imprisoned by um, the Governor General of the Gold Coast, Charles Arden Clark, for incitement and sedition. During his imprisonment, he actually won an election. Um, so in 1951, there was an important election in the Gold Coast, which Nkrumah won, and which basically demonstrated to the British authorities that independence was basically around the corner. So let me ask you two things. I can see Tom wants to butt in, so I'm going to ask sure. two questions to stop him. Um, the first one, <laughs> the first Fair one enough. is about uh, education. So yeah. Nkrumah has gone to New York and. Mm. Um, I think he studied in Pennsylvania before he went to yeah. New York, Lincoln yeah. University, and then he goes to yeah. the, the LSE. And yeah. if you look at a, a lot of these African independence leaders in the 50s and 60s, mm. an awful lot of them have studied abroad or studied mm. in, the, in the metropolis. And I wondered yes. if you could talk a bit about the influence of that and then how representative that makes them of 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 of, of the people they want to lead, basically. Mm. And then the second issue is about... One thing we haven't talked about is the Second World War, and that presumably that had a shattering effect on these, on the self confidence of the Europeans, but also the confidence of the African. Well, the African po- population now knew that these people weren't. I mean, if they'd ever thought it, that these people are beatable. You know, they're not superheroes. They have fle- feet of clay, and they've been humiliated by the Japanese, for example. Mm. So yeah. there's two things there. Can you say something about those two? Um, yeah, yeah. And, so and then the, Tom uh, can never speak again. Tom Holland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I know my um, place. <laughs> um, so, so during the um, the interwar period, yes, ma- many um, anti-colonial leaders moved to the US and the UK to study, and I and I think this this relates actually to the notion of pan-Africanism. What what many people I, um, I'm not sure understand is that. Pan-Africanism is, in many respects, a Western concept. So um, the very first 
Pan-African Conference, for instance, was actually held in London in 1900. And it wasn't actually organized by an African. It was organized by um, a West Indian man called Henry Sylvester Williams. And Pan-African Congresses were held in Paris, London, New York, and Manchester before they actually reached an African (laughs) city. So the very first Pan-African Conference that was held in Africa uh, wasn't until 1974. Wow, that um, rate's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, It's it's incredible. In in Dar es Salaam. So so when when these anti-colonial leaders moved to West, major Western cities, they were also interacting with West Indian thinkers and intellectuals as well. So like Fanon? Yeah, so like Fanon, uh, but also like, um, for instance, C.L.R. James in London. Yeah. So they were, they were interacting with these West Indian thinkers and intellectuals. Uh, and, and incidentally, um, Marcus Garvey never visited Africa in his life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and, and Gar- Gar- Garvey was, was one of the most influential um, Pan-African leaders. So, so, so to that extent, many of these anti-colonial leaders were, to a significant extent, um, westernized. Right. Uh, and they were westernized to an extent um, that sort of, that essentially distinguished them from the native population of the country from, from which they came from. Because m- most, most of the population, most of the population, populations in, in the countries from which they came were um, largely illiterate and they couldn't speak the European languages. And I think one of the most distinctive qualities of many of these post-colonial and anti-colonial African leaders was their fluency and was their charisma. Somebody like um, Leopold um, Seda Senghor um, was, was both an influential figure within the Negritude movement in 1930s Paris, but also became the first president of Senegal. And he was he was um he he was elected a fellow of the Académie Française, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, the first the first the first black uh, black African to be elected a member of the Académie Française, uh, and he was also the first person to pass agrégation, which which is like um, a, a very competitive exam um, that allows you to become a teacher in in France. He was also um, a school teacher in France during the nineteen thirties, um, and also a poet as well. So, I mean, we we opened with Fanon. And, and yeah. I commented on when, when I read him, I mean, he feels to me incredibly French. Yes. So many of his attitudes, his assumptions, his arguments are, are French. abstract nouns. And you, you mentioned um, <laughs> C.L.R. James, you know, this yes. brilliant um, uh, writer from the Caribbean. And, and I read him because he writes about cricket. Mm. And I, the first, when I read him when I was young, I thought, oh, this is, you know, he's very radical. You know, this is most unlike any writing about cricket I've ever read. And I read him again recently and I thought, God, this guy's British. <laughs> he's, he's, he's going on about WG Grace all the time. And, and, and I guess that's kind of tr- probably true if you're coming from the Caribbean, because they've been shaped for so much longer by British and French traditions mm. of imperialism. And Africa, yeah. you know, the, the, the period of British and French rule is actually pretty short, isn't it? I mean, isn't yes. It? In many of these places, you know, it's a few decades. And yeah. yet... It does seem, you know, both with Nkrumah and, and Senghor, who you've mentioned, that an awful lot of what is motivating them is coming from the universities of London, Paris, mm. New York. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so do you, I mean, would it be an exaggeration to say that the impetus for decolonization from Western rule is itself pretty Western? Um, I, I think that, that would be a correct thing to say, uh, because... Um, even the notion of, 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 and and this links to um, to your book again, Tom. The, the, oh, the don't do this! Of, oh, don't thank do you, this. thank you, Tom. <laughs> I've been so well, but the, the notion of of universal human yeah. rights is is um, well. And Krumer had a he he had a uh, I think he got a kind of highest distinction in in theology, didn't he? He had a. Yeah, 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 and and and, and interesting like enough, Dominic, um, in Krumer <laughs> was um, was baptized a Catholic, um, and he seriously considered becoming um, a Jesuit priest, but but then um, politics, yeah, Christianity it. by other means, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely, and 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 um, as well was was also um, besotted by many many aspects of of British culture. 
Um, so um, when he when he became prime minister of Ghana in in 1957, he actually visited the Queen in in Balmoral, and and a picture was 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 taken of both of them until the day till, till the day he died. Um, that that picture of of Nkrumah and the Queen um, was one of his most prized possessions. Well, there's that um, very, um, I think, exaggerated sequence in The Crown. Have you seen that, <laughs> where Nkrumah and the Queen dance? Dominic, Dom- yeah, Dom- Dom- Dominic won't yeah. watch this. He, he, he despises <laughs> The Crown. Um, I think that's exaggerated, but I mean, I guess that's a kind of... Ex- but what, just yeah. on the topic of, um, of religion... Dominic, oh, <laughs> just that's such a Tom Holland thing to say. <laughs> but, 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 but there's, 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 there's kind of Western type, you know, post-French revolutionary uh, universalism, and that, yeah. you know, which feeds into Marxism, and that obviously is a kind of a, a very appealing to lots of African leaders in this period. But you do also have the universalisms of Islam and Christianity, mm. and they're also yeah. quite important. And one of the things I thought was really interesting when I was researching Dominion was to discover how important Ethiopia was as, mm. you know, the first Christian nation before yes. Rome. Um, yes. And and this sense that its origins go all the way back to, to Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, and this sense yeah. that it had preserved its independence and therefore could provide a kind of inspiration to both to both to kind of African nationalists and to African Christians that did not come yes. from Europe. Um, yeah. And and that seemed to have a kind of salience and importance that I hadn't properly understood until I b- began reading that. Yes, yes. E- Ethiopia played an integral role in the, um, um, in the concepts of Pan-Africanism. So you, 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 you can even see a legacy of that in, in Rastafarianism, yeah. um, which, which is a sort of a, a melange of, of pan-Africanist ideals with, with, with a sort of worship of e- Ethiopian monarchy. Haile Selassie. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and even though there was even a time when to call the black, when black people were referred to as Ethiopians or, yeah, or Ethiopes or, or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that, that refers to, again, the sort of integral role um, Ethiopia played in, in in a sort of collective black identity. I, I think that's why Ethiopia surviving the onslaught of Mussolini during the Second World War uh, was, I think, so important to African decolonization because you sort of see the twin poles, the sort of ancient African civilization against um, this... Um, European superpower that claims to be a sort of resurrection of the Roman Empire, yeah. uh, basically, and 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 the the African civilization survived. Yeah. yeah. Just before we go to a break, I have a question. Um, the, the last question I asked about the Second World War, Tom Holland yeah, very yeah, deftly yeah. steered it away from <laughs> back to his book and the subject of religion. <laughs> so let's let's park the Second World War for a second because the question i have to ask so much of this has been about elites about very highly educated people mm. who've gone you know who are influenced by the example of ethiopia who have been transformed by being at universities in their 20s and 30s who've been talking to communists in camden doing lots of dodgy things like that um, and, and have come in, back inspired with pan-african ideals my question is what about everybody else because obviously mm. decolonization is partly driven by you know mass meetings protest movements insurgencies and so on what is it that explains i mean is it as as simple it can't be as simplistic as a a generalized desire for freedom Hmm. but but what is it that gets all these people marching and and chanting and 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 rallying behind kwame and krumah and and people like him in other colonies um so with with kwame um and, and krumah he was basically um Actually, I, I, th- I think the interesting thing about Nkrumah was that e- even though he went to the West and attended uh, many elite um, university, he actually came from a not a particularly distinguished family. And the base of Nkrumah's support came from the, um, the, the sort of emerging urban workers, essentially. Um, so the um, trade unionists, school teachers in cities... Um, r- rather than necessarily the elites of the country. Um, so Nkrumah was basically able to cultivate 
um, the persona of a man of the people rather than a sort of distant elite. So he was able to sort of engage in that form of populism, which I think is an accurate way to describe it. And he was also a sort of agony aunt as well. So, so an interesting thing about Nkrumah was that m- many people actually visited his residence um, during the 1950s, asking for advice about what kind of job they can do, and also asking asking him advice on on marital problems as well. <laughs> that's a, that's a level of uh, engagement that um, yeah. That's, yeah, that's an element of this of this imagine, podcast we've yet to explore. But imagine doing that with yeah, Boris. Which, which, Imagine going to well, number ten and asking because... Boris for marital advice. That'd be terrible. <laughs> well, which, which is funny because um, and Krumer was 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 not was was not married during this, during that time, and 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 unlike many um, unlike many other African leaders, he had a very sort of chaste um, and slightly puritanical private life. He was going to become a Jesuit, wasn't he? So, <laughs> yeah, su- yeah, 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 yeah. Not surprised. I leaders. think we I, I think we should take a break, and I think when we come back. Um, we should look at the um, the violence that surrounded quite a lot of the transfer of power. So, sure. you know, quite a, the, the British particularly were quite mm. adept at the flummery of, mm. you know, the, the Union Jack coming down and the new flag going up. And and mm. likewise, um, the French were, were were very good at kind of manufacturing the idea of the francophonie and the mm. the idea that uh, nothing much had, had greatly changed. But of course, there mm. really were very very violent exceptions to that so let's look at that yeah. and then perhaps could we look at congo which is i mean in a way the most yes definitely, brutal of the lot definitely. so we will we will be back with that after the break i'm anthony scaramucci former white house director of communications and wall street financier and i'm katty k u.s special correspondent for bbc studios i've been covering american politics for almost three decades welcome to the rest is politics u.s brought to you by Goalhanger. go on tell us were those donations you made like obama in 2008 was that idealism were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about African decolonization with Tom Owolade, and we have been talking about elites, we've been talking about Camden coffee shops, and now we're going to talk about violence. Because obviously, um, this was often a very violent process, wasn't it? The process mm. of decolonization. The classic examples, places like Algeria, I suppose Kenya would be the most obvious British one. It's not always violent, but but when when is it that you think is it is is violence more likely when there are big populations of white settlers? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think that definitely um, is the case in the, in the two classic examples, so um, Algeria and also Kenya as well. So with with Algeria, I, I think because um, you you said at the beginning that Algeria ten percent of of Algeria um, Algeria's population came from Europe, so were European settlers, the uh, Pierre Noir. Um, I think I think the striking thing 
um, was that in Algiers, which was the biggest city in Algeria, the European population was a third of the city. So, so they, they, they had a massive presence. The people like Albert Camus, I mean, yeah, 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 he's yeah, the most yeah, famous Albert example. Camus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely, definitely. And, and interestingly enough, ma- many of them, because I, I think the perception some people might think is that many of the um, sort of Pierre Noir European settlers came from France and one of these elites were actually meant many of them were, were poor um, and they came from other European Mediterranean um, countries. So um, Spain, Greece, Italy as well. E- even Camus' Camus' mother um, was partly Spanish, I believe, or had Spanish ancestry. But I, I think that the key, the key thing that defined many of the Pierre Noir was resistance to any sort of of decolonization or any sort of independence away from France. And the same was true in Rhodesia, wasn't it? And obviously, exactly. I mean, in South exactly. Africa, yeah, I mean, exactly. More complicated, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that was partly motivated by fear of, of living as a minority in, in a majority um, native country and, and the sort of the possibility of any sort of retribution, which was, which was, which was the case um, in, 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 in both Algeria and also in, in Rhodesia, actually, um, unfortunately. Um, so you know, there was definitely violence on, on, on both sides. So in... Algeria, the, the most famous classic examples of the violence was, was the way in which collective punishment was meted out by the French colonial authorities. So all the um, Arab and Berber populations were essentially quarantined within um, parts of the city and any, and any sort of anyone suspected of, of sedition or terrorism was um, violently tortured. And, and, but, but there was also, um, from about 1955, the FLN, which was the guerrilla organization behind the Algerian, to which Fanon belonged, right? I mean, he went yeah, yeah, he belonged yeah. to as well. Yeah, <clears throat> also targeted, specifically targeted um, civilian er- areas with European people living there. Well, there's those famous scenes in the film, The Battle of Algiers, of yeah. the people planting the bombs in the cafes, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, exactly, incredibly. exactly. Yeah, I mean, that br- yeah. brilliant film actually about the pres- yeah, yeah. about the the violence and the yeah and the sort An of difficulty film. of it. Yeah. Yeah, and and the film and the film was released only in in nineteen sixty six, so just like literally just four years after the war ended, and it was actually banned in France for about five years. And and I mean the argument of Wretched of the Earth, Fanon's great book, is is precisely that there, there needs to be violence if yeah if yeah European colonialism is going to be cast off. Yeah, because Fanon thought that the um, nature of colonialism and imperialism was violence by its very nature so yeah. the only adequate response to it was through violent means okay which which brings us to to congo yeah which is notoriously the worst example of european colonialism and i guess you would say i mean it's not a coincidence then that that its fate in independence is is kind of the awful as well yeah so um in contrast to many other colonial states in, in Congo, the native black population were, before independence, they were forbidden to become lawyers um, or doctors or architects. And they were also forbidden to gain any sort of senior position in the military. So, so the, um, the population was not, not only sort of disenfranchised politically, but they were forbidden any, any sort of route to gaining power. So when the... Um, Congo became independent. There was no civil society yeah. that that was able to sort of successfully carry the country to any sort of prosperity or or even sustainability because the population was largely illiterate. But also the Belgians just they just pack up and go. Yeah, yeah, they? yeah, yeah. They I mean, up and went. It's, it's unbelievable <laughs> when you actually read the timeline. They're sort of vaguely talking about leaving in 1959. They have a meeting yeah. in January 1960, yeah. and they say we're off in the summer. Goodbye. Yeah. You know, fend yeah. for yourselves. Yeah, and 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 and, and, and even like during the um, final speech, the, um, the the king of of Belgium at that time, um, King Badua, um, basically praised um, King Leopold II um, for bringing the Belgians um, but, to Congo. Uh, and, and Patrice Lumumba, yeah. um, uh, uh, in a speech after said, um, 
we are not your monkeys anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about Lamumba. Um, yeah, who is he? Where's he coming from? Because he's a, he's a, a key and, and tragic figure. He's the great martyr, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, the, he's the great martyr of 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 decolonization. Uh, you, you could you could plausibly say. Um, so Lumumba was born in um, 1925, which, um, funny enough, was also the year that Fanon was born in, uh, and and he he became a sort of trade unionist, and and by 1960 he was a leader of of a particular party in Congo. Uh, I, I think I think what's what's important to emphasise um, is that Congo was a vast country. And, and there were many so there were many parties competing during the um during the elections um that led to Congo's independence and Lumumba was just one of a vast array so he had to handle a coalition basically and so by late June of nineteen sixty Lumumba becomes um the first prime minister of of an independent congo and the um the non-executive president was a man called um, Joseph Kasafubu, who, who would later play a, a, um, an influential role. And, and in this time, Lumumba's Secretary of State, when he became um, Prime Minister, um, was a man called um, Joseph Desiree Mobutu. Mm-hmm. And now Mobutu, before he became Lumumba's private secretary, he was a journalist, but before that, he served in the um, Congolese uh, armed forces, but he, he was only allowed to serve in, 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 in lowly positions. He, he wasn't allowed to ascend um, through the ranks because that was explicitly forbidden for black Africans. So by late June 1960, Lumumba is prime minister, um, but um, two crises, two forms of crisis were about to engulf him. The, the first crisis... Um, was the mutiny led by the um, Congolese armed forces because th- they were still um, largely white, um, essentially, and 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 they they just they they were opposed um, to Lumumba from the start. So Lumumba dismissed them. And the second crisis was a secessionist movement in the southeast of Congo, um, the Katanga region, um, which which is where uh, which was where um, a lot of the diamonds. Um, were, were stored in Congo, and Lumumba was frightened of of both the mutiny and the secessionist movement, and that's why he actually called for the UN to come in and intervene. And, and then Lumumba got frustrated with the UN, <laughs> and eventually he, he, he did he, he did probably the um, the biggest mistake that he could possibly do, which was ask for the Soviet Union right to come in and intervene, but- and then that that was his downfall. And this is when Eisenhower is yeah. the US president. And Eisenhower, a few years earlier, had effectively pulled the curtain down on, on the British and French imperial period yeah. At, yeah. at Suez. Yeah, yeah. Suez. But now he's <laughs> he's saying we've got to get rid of this guy. I mean, he yeah, kind of yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, he, 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 he effectively says that, doesn't he? He kind of says yeah. we've got to do whatever is necessary to get rid well, of there's him. There's lots of uh, declassified there's lots of yeah, declassified yeah. mi6 and cia documents that say you know ideally we should kill him yeah exactly because 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 they saw they saw lumumba as basically a second fidel castro yeah. essentially um somebody um who was um basically an anti-colonial leader and so, who, and so who they just have become all, a soviet state sorry they, they have all these kind of mad schemes to get rid of, of castro famously with exploding yeah. cigars and things and they send they send a guy called dr death <laughs> Langley, Sidney Gottlieb, who has this wheeze to, to mix a, some poison that will simulate the effects of polio in yeah. in Lumumba's toothpaste. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they, they tried that, but um, that, that didn't come because the um, um, I think the poison ran out of its sell by date. <laughs> That's very God. CIA behavior. Oh dear, oh dear. So, so yeah. So the poison toothpaste doesn't work. So, so. Talk us through the horrible story about what how they get rid of him. Joseph um, Desiree Mobutu and um, and Joseph Kasafubu, um, who, as I said earlier, was the um, the president of Congo. They decide they, they they the CIA and America and also the Belgian authorities saw both of them as suitable replacements for 
Patrice Lumumba, and and so they 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 got in touch with both of them, and and Lumumba's um, rule as the prime minister of Congo lasted sixty four days, um, so a couple of months after, with all the crisis, the, the, the military mutiny, but also the secession movements in southeast, lost control um, and was basically imprisoned after. And, and and then, a few months later, in January 1961, on his way to the, um, the, the southeast, taken to the southeast, he was brutally murdered. And his body was um, decomposed, uh, I think yes. is the right way to put it, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and buried in an obscure place. He was put in acid, wasn't he? Was he yeah. dissolved yeah, yeah. in acid, basically? Yeah, dissolved in acid, yes. And all that remained was a tooth that got yeah. found in... I, the details, I, I, I can't bear anybody touching my nails. It's kind of really shivers. I hate it. It's kind of, I really, really hate it. How did and, you get uh, on when your parents were cutting your nails? When oh, you were I couldn't stand it. I mean, even thinking about it makes me Gosh. flinch. And Patrice Lumumba thought he had it bad. Well, <laughs> but they, they shoved um, splints underneath his nails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, and they that's, him. oh, just horrible, horrible, horrible. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, enough of that. Um, but but that, that's the, the crisis doesn't actually end there. So after Lumumba was assassinated, Mobutu and Kasafubu still had to do with the uh, still had to deal with the secession movement in the southeast Katanga um, separation movement. So they had to quell quell that movement. But a few years after that, they also had to deal with a, secession, a secession movement in a place called Stanleyville. So Stanleyville, um, which is in the the east of the country was where um, Lumumba had most of his support. So Stanleyville, in 1964, declared independence from Congo. And this led to um, a terrible civil war in, in, in which um, Joseph Mobutu, as now a, a, a military um, lieutenant general, had to quell that, that secession movement. And tens of thousands of people were killed. And then, <laughs> by 1965... Uh, when when that Stanleyville secession movement was was finally suppressed, Mobutu basically dismissed Joseph Kasafubu, the president, and also also the prime minister at that time, and declared himself as the new president of Congo yeah, yeah. in November 1965. And a few months or six months later, Mobutu accused four ministers from the previous administration. Of, of being corrupt and of basically being treacherous. Um, and four of those ministers, including um, the previous prime minister, uh, were publicly executed. So Mobutu kind of becomes the, the paradigm of yeah. the despotic African president. So he's, he's, he's nicknamed the dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. um, he, I, I mean, he's what he's, he's plunders billions yeah, yeah, and spends it all on kind of Concord trips to Paris and he builds. He builds a Versailles, doesn't he? He builds a Versailles in the jungle. The rumble in the jungle. The rumble in the jungle. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. And 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 the interesting thing about Mobutu is that he, he sort of combines many sort of factors um, within um, the sort of the post-colonial leader. So on on the on the one hand, he had a very strong relationship with America. And, and with many other Western um, forces. But on the other hand, um, he developed a philosophy called uh, Mobutuism and authenticity. So authenticity. So he, he changed the name of, of Congo to Zaire um, in 1971. And he also changed the currency to Zaire and also the river, the river Congo to the river Zaire. And, and, and he changed his name as well from Joseph Desiree Mobutu to Mobutu Sese Seko. Uh, and during that time, during his reign, he, he made it forbidden for ca- Catholic priests and Catholic bishops to baptize any child with a European name. Um, so all, 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 all the people in, in Zaire ne- needed to have African names. And, and he was doing all of this whilst visiting Paris, be, being great friends with Nixon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but isn't that isn't that a sort of pattern though, Tom? That you see yeah. this with um, 
I mean, Tom and I were talking before we started the broadcast, actually, about uh, Jean Bedel Bacassa in yes. the Central <laughs> African Republic, who makes himself emperor. He has a coronation based on that yeah. of Napoleon. Or indeed Idi Amin. I mean, Idi Amin was in the King's African Rifles. He was a cook. He played rugby. His Last fellow players, of Scotland. players used to hit him with a hammer on the head before games to get him excited. Um, but yes, he, he claims that he's the last king of Scotland. He gives himself the title conqueror of the British Empire. So on the one hand, these guys are very anti-colonial, anti-Western. Yeah. Yeah. But they're clearly completely shaped by that legacy and they are that they're they they can't rid themselves. You know, they, yeah. they they have to constantly prove every day that they are better than the Western exploiters. And they do that by using Western kind of formulae and, and, and flying on Concord and giving themselves invented Western titles and things. Yeah, Mobutu's favorite book, um, and apparently the book that he was able to recite was um Machiavellius the Prince. Uh, wow. He could <laughs> recite it. He'd learned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could recite, apparently he could, he could recite large passages from it. Um, it's quite a short book, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Even so, <laughs> though. Quite Even impressive. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quite, quite impressive. Um, I guess, uh, I mean, this is an absolute whistle-stop tour around an entire continent. Uh, I mean, I wonder, just now, there is talk about um, China mm. and whether you feel that the, perhaps there is a, a process of recolonization going on with China. People do talk about that. Do you think that's exaggerated or not? I, I don't think it's necessarily exaggerated because um, China is definitely investing a lot in Africa, in African infrastructure. And it is true that there are many Chinese people that are moving into Africa, w working um, with African businesses, working with African African engineers. So I, I, I do think that that is a significant fact of 21st century Africa. It, it, it's the, the issue is is, is the, the extent to which this is comparable to colonialism. Yeah, in the European during the nineteen yeah during Euro, the yeah. European colonialism. If if we have a very sort of expansive definition of colonialism, then it is definitely comparable. Uh, but if, if our definition of colonialism is more limited to the European example, then I think there are significant differences between um, what's going on in China and what occurred during the 19th um, and early 20th century. Let me ask you a question about the process of decolonization sure. from the viewpoint now. Um, when we look at it now, I mean, we've listed, you know, what happened in the Congo. Um, obviously, there are so many countries where the British or the French congratulated themselves on having mm. set up these these incredibly healthy multi-party democracies. <laughs> and then within two years or five years, that had come crashing down. Do you think that there was any plausible way that by and large, that, that in general, the process of, of European withdrawal from Africa could have been better handled or do you think it really it was a kind of given the nature of those regimes given the the weakness of civil society in some of those countries given that yeah. the europeans had treated the africans so badly do you think that yeah. was always inevitable um i i wouldn't say inevitable but i i would say it, it would have been quite difficult to successfully manage um, a process of decolonization i think partly because Many many Africans within within the particular parameters of the nation state came from different ethnic groups and different cultural traditions. So creating a nation state out of many of these territories was always going to be very difficult. I, I, I think one example which has um, personal resonance for me um, is Nigeria. Um, so so at the time of at the time, Nigeria became an independent state. There were over 250 different ethnic groups within the country. And, and, and the country was largely um, split into three, three territories. So the, um, the, the largely Muslim north, which was um, ruled by the, um, the Hausa Fulani ethnic group, um, and, and also the, um, the, the, the largely Christian south, which was um, bifurcated between the um, Igbo East and the largely Yoruba West. And less than 10 years after Nigeria became an, um, an independent state, there was, a, there was the Biafran War, which, which led to the, um, 
to the death of two or three million people. So I I, I, I do think that it was always going to be difficult to, to successfully manage decolonization. And I think um, a big part of that isn't just cruelty by the Europeans or oppression by the Europeans or incompetence by the Europeans, though um, this was definitely a factor, but also the um, the fact that many of these countries um, were largely fictions, um, which sort of elided the important um, cultural and ethnic differences within the population. Which I suppose maps onto the idea that a lot of the the uh, ideological impetus for decolonization comes mm. from Europe. The very yes. idea of yeah, of the, a nation, the, the state being independent, is is mm. a, a manifestation of that. Yeah, um, definitely. definitely. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I, I such a great discussion. Thanks ever so much for it. We um, haven't even scratched the surface, have we? Yes. No. <laughs> well, I think, I think I think I mean I think you know as with so many of these um, discussions we've had, it kind of opens up all kinds of. Um, prospects for future episodes i mean we haven't talked about rhodesia or south africa mm, at yeah. all which are kind of yeah. huge huge topics so yeah. i think these are you know things to come back to don't you Dominic? definitely definitely absolutely definitely. if tom will um if tom will find sure. time to sure. come back definitely. and and maybe we can finally talk about what the importance of world war ii tom holland <laughs> yes yes I'll, I'll keep that in mind <laughs> yeah. as well yeah. all right <laughs> who cares about world war ii yeah well your brother <laughs> from what I know he does. Yes, he, yes he does <laughs> Um, brilliant. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com dot com.